Waverly Knobs Entertainment presents the Branch Out Podcast with your hosts Evan Charles Anderson and Tatiana Ivan. We discuss all the exciting facets of digital media and marketing for businesses and professionals. Our goal is to empower you so you can increase your knowledge, engagement, and brand identity. Let's get ready to branch out. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Branch Out. Today, we have another special guest for you. We're going to be talking with Tom Shapiro, who is the founder and CEO of StratAbeat, which is a branding, design, and marketing agency in the Boston area. He's also a founder of a neuromarketing group in the Boston area. And throughout his career, Tom has developed marketing strategies for more than a dozen Fortune 500 clients, such as AT&T, Hewlett-Packard, Intel, Kraft Foods, eBay... The list goes on and on. And his marketing insights have been published in many places as well. CMO.com, CNN.com, HubSpot blog, Marketing Profs, just to name a few. And this year, he's just released a new book titled Rethink Your Marketing, which outlines seven strategies for rethinking different aspects of your marketing so you can unleash new revenue growth. And the book really helps brands that have kind of hit a revenue plateau, get unstuck in jumpstart sales. So Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your professional journey. Have you always had a love for marketing? Sure. Yes, I've, I've always loved marketing. In fact, back when I was in college, and this is, I'm, I'm not lying, I would say go to the local pizzeria and instead of doing what all the other kids were doing, which is just chowing down on pizza, I literally would write a business plan for them. Wise man say, forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. And I would, I would come up with all these different ideas for, okay, if I owned this pizzeria, what would I do differently? And so even way back then, I loved marketing and I uh, still very, very passionate about it today. Nice. Did you ever share those plans with your uh, friends or <laughs> kept them to yourself? <laughs> I, I kept them to myself. I didn't share them, but uh, but it was great. Once, once I started my career getting into marketing, then, then I was finally able to uh, to let loose. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, never, never shared those early plans. And in fact, I'd probably be very, very embarrassed if I did share those. <laughs> it's like, it's like you look at an artist's early childhood drawings and they're just miles ahead now. But back then, you know, it was pretty awesome still for, for somebody that age to draw something so fantastic. And so I don't think I've ever thought about marketing plans when I was <laughs> just hanging around eating at pizza places. That's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very unusual. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like, oh, are you here for the uh, the New York style or the Chicago style? No, I'm here for the business plan style. That's how I roll. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your operations. <laughs> you have all this history, all this excitement in marketing, and you know, from pizza place now to Stratabeat, your company it puts strategy in the driver's seat, as you say. So it's in fact the core meaning behind the company as well. Of course, we all know it's important to have a solid plan of action, as you knew in those pizza joints, uh, before implementing marketing efforts, but you know, what we all don't know is where to begin. So, how, you know, how do we begin thinking about putting together a plan of attack? You know, how do you and your team specifically help your clients just create a just kick ass marketing strategy to achieve their goals? Sure. And that's a great, great place to start. And, and you're right. So, so Stratabeat really comes from the idea and the concept of strategy. So Strata is strategy and beat is heartbeat. So strategy is at the heartbeat of everything that we do. And that's where our company name came from. And so what a lot of companies get wrong, unfortunately, is they think that doing things, right, taking certain tactics or forms of marketing is a strategy. So they might say that, oh, our strategy is content marketing. Well, that's, that's not a strategy. That's, that's just a form of, of uh, marketing. And so what we like to do is really come down to the essence of how are you going to win? right? How are you going to win consistently? Where are you going to play? How are you going to ensure that your prospects are going to select you over all the other options available in the market, including doing nothing? And, <laughs> and so, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. We, we had a food service um, supplier come to us and they were just starting out and they were kicking things off and they showed us their plans and we took a look at the entire industry. And we noticed that across the landscape, everyone looked the same. Everyone was talking the same. It was a sea of sameness. Everything was the same. 
And what was interesting in the conversation was my first conversation with the founder of the company. It was probably about a 45 minute conversation and he spent about 35 minutes talking about his passion for fighting hunger. So I said, hmm, this is very interesting. You've just spent the majority of our time talking about fighting hunger. And if I look at all of your marketing, I don't see that anywhere. Bad, that's not a good strategy. <laughs> so, and so we put that at the centerpiece of their strategy. And all of a sudden we had something that was true to their DNA. It really represented who they were and what really fired them up as people. And that carried across in the brand. And it was a massive differentiator compared to the sea of sameness, which was their competition. And we helped them by having this, this focus where they, they just went all in. It wasn't dabbling, it wasn't halfway. Mm. They went all in on fighting hunger. And that was front and center in all of their marketing and all of the PR and everything that we did. Fighting hunger was the central message. It was the initial message, right? And we helped them go from zero, just starting out on day one, to 12 months later, seven figures in revenue. Oh, wow. Wow, that's awesome. But it all came down to strategy, right? Understanding how are you going to win rather than focusing on, oh, we will have a website, we will do blogging, we will do this, we will do that. It's coming up with a strategy first. I can give you another example as well. In, in a prior life, one, one of the, the top pasta companies in the world called up, I was at a different agency at the time, and uh, they were interested in SEO, search engine optimization. And so I said, fine, that you know sounds great. Can we have access to your web analytics so we can look under the hood and see what's going on? So they provided their analytics and I started digging and digging and digging. And all of a sudden it was very clear to me that if we optimized their website and if we drove tons of traffic for them, it would be the worst thing in the world that we could do for them. In other words, driving tons of traffic, doing our job, optimizing their site would have done more damage to their brand than anything else we could have done. And the reason was, as we dug into their analytics, we realized that everyone coming to their site hated it. It was oh. a horrible brand experience. Oh. It was boring, boring, boring. Uh, and, and you know, it's crazy because you think about food, you think about pasta, and you think about, think about the food network. Think about how exciting food can be. It can be entertainment. Yet they took the opposite approach and it was a lot of explanations, a lot of text, even their videos. They invested a lot in video, but the videos were boring, boring, boring. No one sat through an entire video. And so we came back to them and, and we said, look, you know, we could optimize your site, but we shouldn't. And so what we should do first is fix your brand experience, right? Let's fix your website. Let's fix what your brand is about. Let's fix the experience that all of your prospects are going to have once we start driving tons of traffic. We concepted a campaign for them where we said, look, you, you're an Italian company. And so you, you're authentically, right? You're, you're authentically, <laughs> a, a, you know, a, a pasta maker They're in legit. the real sense. Yeah. yeah, they are legit, right? And so we said, look, you know, your persona could be the, the Italian grandmother having this huge, huge plate of pasta, bringing it out to the family and having the entire family at the, at the dining room table. And this was at a time when the fragmentation of the family unit was in the news and it was a big topic. And so we said, look, let's capitalize on this. Let's talk about bringing the family back to the dining room table mm. and you're the brand to do it. And that's all you're going to talk about is bringing the family back to the dining room table. And the, the grandma, the Italian grandma is going to you know, feed everyone until they're completely stuffed with, with your wonderful, wonderful pasta. And so um, they loved the concept. And so we partnered with their PR agency, created an entirely new website, all built on this concept of bringing everyone back to the table and of course, revenue went up and then, it, and of course we optimized everything. So everything was SEO optimized in building this new approach. And, and that was more strategic than if we just went in and we did SEO. So basically just to, to kind of uh, p pick out some really interesting things that you brought up is you went to a client who said, Hey, I want to do this. And you said, mm, no, your baby's ugly. Here's how we can fix it. <laughs> exactly. How did they take that when you first kind of told them, Hey, I know you're hiring me to do this, but what you really need is this complete new thing. Well, I think initially they were shocked because obviously they were asking, 
half a dozen agencies or so, and we were the only ones to tell them that they should not optimize initially, that they needed to fix the brand experience first. And so they were shocked that, that we came up with that, but once we explained it to them, they immediately understood and they fell in love with the concept. So I think, I think as long as you can get over that initial shock, then uh, people, people can be very receptive to it if they see the bigger picture and they see what's in it for them in the long run. And it, it sounds like, you know, explaining that reasoning behind your, your strategy plan was very, was good for them to really understand, hey, these, you know, this company that I'm working with really has my best interests at heart. It, you know, I know we hired them to just do this one thing. They could have easily just said, sure, no problem. Here you go and moved along. But you wanted to like really build that that relationship and have that quality relationship with a client where you're not just saying, sure, you hired me to do this one thing. I can do it for you. That's not what you need. I'm not going to you know, maybe get into a conflict with you by telling you what you actually need, but um, that was smart. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, we, we, we always, it's interesting, we always try and have, how we phrase it, a different conversation. Whenever we're talking with a brand for the first time, we want to have a different conversation than everyone else. And so if everyone is talking about, oh, these are the five steps to optimize your website, we want to talk about, well, this is the way to transform your brand. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> You know, and what I find interesting, too, is that in both examples, what was missing from both of their approaches was kind of a humanistic quality. It was a certain type of emotion, energy, passion. It was about really connecting on an emotional level so people can connect with you because people don't connect with just a name. People don't just connect with uh, words because in, in the end, when the words are out of context, they're empty. You helped basically help them put their words into a context that really connected with the audience. Absolutely. And that that's critical. And that's, that's part of a neuromarketing principle where the way that people make decisions is really based on emotions. Uh, the neuroscientist Antonio Damasio ran some really interesting studies of people who had damage to the part of the brain that triggers emotions. In other words, these people could not feel emotions. They were fully functioning adults. If you met them in the street or at the store, you could have a conversation with them and never know that they were inflicted with, with this damage to their brain, but they couldn't feel emotions. And what Damasio found in his studies was they couldn't make purchase decisions because they couldn't feel strongly enough about option A versus option B or product A versus product B or service A versus uh, service B. And so, um, you know, you flip that on its head and then you have to ask yourself in my marketing, okay, a prospect comes to my website or they read my brochure or they come to my trade show booth. If I'm not evoking an emotional response out of them, I'm physically and mentally making it difficult for them to do business with us. And a lot of brands don't realize that. And so we go back to the food service industry example, right? Yes, they could have explained their products just like everyone else in the industry, right? But by talking about fighting hunger, they were evoking an emotional response in their audience, completely changed the image. It flips the entire equation. You just mentioned right there, neuromarketing. Can you tell the audience a bit more of what that is exactly? What are some of the details on neuromarketing and would it put Don Draper out of business or like, I mean, what, what it specifically is this and how can people better understand it? Sure, sure. So neuromarketing is using brain science to market more effectively, where you're connecting more directly, you're engaging more deeply, you're guiding your audience towards the actions that, that matter most to you, but also help them the most. And so it, it's a lot of deeper, deeper connection with your audience by understanding how their brain functions and operates and, and it really is put together. And so um, I'll give you a quick example. So there's something called mirror neurons inside of our brains. Uh, and uh, there, was, uh, there, there was actually a group in Parma, Italy years ago that, that, that was doing scientific studies and they had all these, they, they were looking at the brain patterns of monkeys. And so they had all these nodes all over the monkeys' heads. And, and one day, a graduate student as part of the research team walked into the lab licking an ice cream cone. And all of a sudden, the monkeys started going nuts. 
they started just completely flipping out. And so the scientists thought, oh, well, that's interesting. We, we, should, we should see what's going on here. And so they, said, they thought maybe, oh, well, maybe they're just hungry. And so they see an ice cream cone and, and they reacted. But what they found was in studying the exact neurons that were being fired at the time, it was the same exact firing of neurons, the same exact neurons as if the monkeys were eating the ice cream themselves. So in other words, there was no difference. There was no difference between watching someone eat ice cream and your physical reaction to it, the way your brain reacts to it, versus you eating an ice cream cone yourself. And so that's pretty powerful if you understand how to translate that for your marketing. And so, for instance, look, look at Weight Watchers. What do they do? Do they explain their product? Do they go into the technical and, and chemical makeup of the recipes that they go? No, of course not. Of course, what do they, they show you before and after? Patsy and Penny on losing weight with Weight Watchers. Penny! Pat! Hi, hello! Look at you, you look so well. You look better every time I see you. Well, thank you. Two dress sizes down now. You must feel great, right? I do. How about you? I feel comfortable because what's happening inside of their audience's brains is they're literally, they are feeling as if they're losing weight. They're feeling as if they're already losing weight even without trying the product. And so that's, that's why you see a lot of before and after in marketing, whether it's a home remodeler showing, oh, well, this is the kitchen before, this is the kitchen after where it's beautiful <laughs> and stunning and you wanna have your, your mocha cafe in the, in the, in the morning. And so, um, and so that's all based off of mirror neurons and understanding that physically people are reacting to what they're seeing the same way as if they're feeling it. It, it. You know, if you sold financial software, one thing you could do is show someone on the beach, you know, having achieved financial success, right? And so they're fully successful if you want them to buy your software rather than showing them struggling to, to catch up on their bills, but, you know, showing all the functionality of the software to help them do that. And so it's the same product, you're selling the same exact product, but you're connecting with them and you're connecting with the way that their brain fires neurons in a very different way. That explains why when I look at gym advertisements, I already feel like I worked out and I don't need to actually go to the gym anymore. <laughs> exactly. Explains it. It's that sense of driving energy. You know, you have the music that is incorporated into it. You have the fast cuts, the, the amount of action being put in by the actors or the models or whoever's in it. I mean, yeah, you're, you're seeing it to the point where your brain is almost tricking yourself into thinking that you're really experiencing it too because there's so much detail. There's so many layers there that are triggering certain cues that you then feel like, oh, I'm ready to go to the gym right now. I can do it right now. Let's go. What are we waiting for? So what are your thoughts, Tom? Do you think that neuromarketing is going to be enhanced by technology? Because, I mean, we all know technology is moving at a fast, fast pace. Or do you think that technology actually makes it more difficult to get emotional engagement from customers? So I think that it's going to uh, be enhanced through the development of technology. And I'll give you one example. The emotion recognition technology market is exploding with growth right now. And... Facial recognition technology was put on the map in 2002. It was used during the Super Bowl to scan for any potential criminals in the stands. Since then, the technology has progressed, of course. Now it can even distinguish your emotions. And what better place to test this than at a major political rally? Microsoft clearly felt this way and used it at the recent Democratic and Republican convention. Okay, let's look at... Um social media. It's actually not that old, right? But it feels like it's been here forever, right? Like YouTube was uh, uh, founded, what, 12 years ago, but it feels like it was 30 or 50 years ago. Uh, we can't imagine life today without videos, right? Um, and that's what emotion recognition technology is going to be like for us in the coming years. Uh, Markets and Markets, a market research firm, estimates that the market for emotion recognition technology is going to be over $22 billion with a B, uh, by the year 2020. Wow. That's only a few years away. And you look at, okay, let's look at Apple, right? They're a good representative of what's happening in the market. And so what's Apple doing with regards to emotion recognition technology? Well, they actually filed a patent uh, in 2014 for the recognition of emotions uh, in people uh, based on 
physical attributes of that person. And then they went out last year and they bought a company called Emotient, which again, it, it was uh, based off of facial recognition technology, but, but it, it, it reads people's emotions. And what did they do just in the past month? They bought another emotion recognition technology company, RealFace. And so Apple is going all in on emotion recognition. And you say, hmm, well, where's this all leading us? Well, in different areas, I believe. I believe that eventually emotion recognition is going to be embedded in all of our devices, whether it's your iPhone, whether it's your iPad, whether it's your laptop or your desktop, whether it's your TV, whether it's your car dashboard. Everything is going to be trying to read your emotions so that the technology can perform better for you according to the state that you're in at the time. And you know, you, you look at something as simple as the Facebook newsfeed, right? And Facebook is all over this as well. And just last year, they introduced reactions, right? Where instead of having likes, right? Now, now you can like it or you can express that you're angry about it or you're sad, you can put a little heart, right? You can do all these other emotions. Now, the technology underlying Facebook needs to catch up. Uh, it, it's not sophisticated enough today where Facebook is taking advantage of all these emotional signals that users are giving it so that it customizes your feed accordingly. But, but it's, it's going in that direction. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year, your newsfeed in Facebook is very much dictated by the emotional state that you're in. And you'll be giving Facebook more and more emotional cues on whether you're putting a, a smiley face or whether, whether you're putting a heart, whether you're putting a, you know, the, the face with the tears running down it. And that's going to completely change your Facebook experience. But not only that, it's going to change what the advertisers on Facebook are doing to target you. And so advertisers in the future are going to have the ability, I believe, to say, I wanna target people who are sad, or I wanna target people who are angry. And let's say that you have, you're, you're selling a specific type of, uh, I don't know, medicine or, or vacations, Let, let's say vacations. And so if, if someone's angry or, or frustrated, then maybe, you know, you're, you're pitching them, you know, oh, well, you know, here's, here's our package to take you to the beach. <laughs> you know, I don't know, that's silly, but, but you can see how, how there are many, many opportunities for you to market based on someone's emotions. And I think that that's where all of this is heading. And a lot of it is, is going to be, the other flip side of it is, a lot of it's in place today, not in an automated way, but in a way that, guides marketers towards greater consumer insights. So for example, you look at companies like Kellogg's or Mars or Unilever, and what are they doing? They're already testing their ads in a way, not, not just do you like it or do you not like it, but automatically reading the emotional reactions of their, their testers. And they're doing this through facial recognition, but they're also doing it through other biometric means. So for instance, um, they can read your skin's reaction, depending on the technology that they're using, to see how your skin is changing based on the advertisement that you're watching. And so for instance, you might get sweaty, or it, you, you, know, you, you might um, get goosebumps. And uh, you know, lots of different reactions, but then they can, they can pinpoint that to the exact split second that your skin was changing or that, you know, your, your, if they're scanning your eyes, exactly where your eyes were going or your face, right? How your face changed emotional states. And they can pinpoint that to the second so that they can adjust and optimize their ads for the highest emotional impact. Uh, Nielsen did a really interesting study about two years ago where it found that, um, companies that were optimizing towards emotional impact were able to increase, uh, I, I believe it was uh, purchase intent. I, don't quote me on that, but I think it was purchase <laughs> intent. Uh, went up by 24% simply by optimizing to emotions. And so I, I really believe that that's where all of this technology is taking us is to a deeper level of emotions being a central point of the marketing that we'll be doing. You know, it's interesting because I always thought that, you know, it was military spending and military research that uh, advanced our technology, but it definitely sounds like marketing innovation. It will also be doing the same because all of that has applications in across industries. You know, if you can Absolutely. just read, you know, someone uh, 
you can have like a I don't know a traveling nurse that comes by like oh did you take your medicine oh sure I did and you can be like no you're lying you know this is what my this is what my watch tells me so you know you can take your meds now so it's it's very very fascinating creepy and scary and also amazingly wonderful at the same time yeah it's it's uh it's it's really going to be pervasive uh, you know imagine a car dashboard being able to read your emotions and you let's say that you're in a bit of uh a fender bender, and you're boiling over, right? You're enraged. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the car locked your doors and wouldn't let you get out <laughs> <laughs> and prevented road rage? And and had some aromatherapy re- yes. <laughs> get released. And, and some soft music <laughs> came on. By the time you get out of that car, you're like, oh, this is so great. It's cool, bro. <laughs> It's a fender bender. It happens. Of course, we're in Boston, so that happens more than we'd like to admit. But, but that's actually fantastic, you know, in, at least in the sense of marketing, because, you know, you can try to do all of these marketing surveys. You can try to do all of this kind of heat mapping on a website to see where people are kind of drawn to. But that really doesn't give you a clear image of what's actually going through that person. And a lot of times that person has a hard time describing what are the emotions that are invoked based off of what you're seeing or based off what you're experiencing. And so sometimes we get sort of half answers or we get things that aren't quite even recognizable to us. Like we can't really make out what that data is really telling us. So to have something say, oh, well, this was their blood pressure at this time. This was their pulse. And then all of a sudden it picked up and that adrenaline kicked in. They saw something. We saw the eyes dilate. We could, you know, we could sense all these different things going off at once because it is a very complex system. We're talking about the human body and talking about reactions. There are multiple things firing off all at, at once. And so to have a system that can collect all that data, put it together and really give you a clear image of what's happening is absolutely amazing. Absolutely. And this all goes back to, you know, let, let's go back to the examples of the, of the food service industry supplier, right? Or um, the, the pasta manufacturer, right? And we talked about how essentially what were they doing? They were doing emotional marketing, right? And you look at the most badass marketers in the country. What do they do time after time after time? It's all evoking an emotional response and really ignoring everything else in their marketing. They're not trying to even tell you why you should buy from them. They're not even telling you what they're selling in many cases. Look at, look at Nike. Just do it. Okay. It's one of the most iconic marketing campaigns ever. And it doesn't even tell you what they're selling. Do it. Just do it. And that's why it helped Nike grow to over $32 billion a year in sales, right? Because all it does, it gets us all fired up. It's a very aspirational message and it gets you fired up. And all of a sudden, that's what you associate with Nike. They don't have to tell you how they make their shoes. They don't have to tell you that their shoes are better than anyone else's, right? It's just getting you fired up and that, that's it. They don't do anything else. And you look at Apple. When Steve Jobs came back to Apple, they were what, about 90 days away from bankruptcy. Oh yeah. And, and what did he do? Instead of trying to convince you how great Apple's computers were, right? All he said was think different. That was the campaign, think different. It didn't say anything about why you should buy an Apple computer, right? Nothing. It was all just, again, an aspirational message to get you fired up and, and to evoke an emotional response. And then they carried that over with the Apple Store as well. So if you remember, when the Apple Store started, everyone thought that it was going to be a complete failure because it, retail at the time was suffering and uh, others like Gateway had tried selling computers in retail stores and it was a complete and utter failure. And so what did Apple do? They didn't really, well, actually here, I'll, I'll explain it this way. I'll tell you what others in the industry were doing at the time, and then we can compare it to how Apple sold. And you'll see the difference, and you'll see the difference in outcomes. So Apple started the Apple Store. The 800-pound gorilla in the industry at the time was CompUSA. Mm-hmm. CompUSA had superstores where how did they sell? They told you the CPU speed of the computer, <laughs> right? That's how they sold. You want a bigger hard drive? Great, we can sell that to you, right? You need more RAM? We can sell you more RAM, right? And it was all, you know, explaining the technical nature of the product and you could just, it was selling on specifications, right? The only other way that they could sell to you was 10% off, 20% off, 30% off, right? Oh yeah. And so they did it both ways. They would tell you the technical specs and then they would discount it like crazy. 
and that's how they sold. So Apple started selling computers in that environment. That's how computers were sold back then. And Apple never talked about CPU speeds and they never discounted anything ever. They still don't. Right, right. And so all they did was they wanted you to come in and experience Mac, right? They wanted you to experience the Apple way of life and become a religious convert, right? <laughs> and, and, and it was an experience. It was an emotional experience. They just wanted you to feel what the world of Apple was. And you could, uh, they even employed uh, mirror neurons. They wanted you to play around on their machines and their devices. They wanted you to, to see yourself being who you wanted to become. And the Apple store went on to become the fastest growing retail chain in history, the fastest growing ever. And what happened to CompUSA? They went bankrupt. So that's the difference of trying to sell rationally versus trying to sell based on emotions. Oh yeah, they, they made technology, they meaning Apple, they made technology sexy. It had that absolutely, sex appeal. Absolutely, yeah. So it, it really opened up the doors for so many people to use their product in comparison if they went to CompUSA and they go, I don't know what a CPU is. Uh, the only motherboard I know of was the one I was birthed out of. So like, <laughs> what, you know, what what are these things? And so, yeah, they, they got rid of all the jargon and yes, just went with exactly. the emotion. Yeah, exactly. Actually, uh, I remember when the iPhone 6 came out and they were just showcasing the camera and like all these pictures, but all these pictures were from exotic faraway lands that I'm like, what the average busy person doesn't have time to go to these places to take these pictures, but but look what you could do with the phone. And everyone I know was raving in about the camera and I'm like, oh, show me some pictures you take. And it would be like the food that they ate that morning yeah. or some other photo of just random stuff. and. It's like, okay, but that's the emotion was that, oh, but you could look at, the, you the could potential. be the potential. Right. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Getting you fired up over uh, what life could be. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> whether it's having a six pack of abs, whether it's, you know, being able to run the next marathon or to have the next big phone because it can do all these amazing things. And of course you want to experience amazing, right? So then here's your opportunity. And that's absolutely right. And it's amazing because once I think you hear that, especially for the audience listening now, once you hear that, it's really hard to look at those things again the same way. Absolutely. You, you start realizing all the emotion they're drawing on and trying to build up based off of our wants. Uh, even if it's something we don't want to admit out loud, you know, that that is something I want to be associated with. And then you collectively come around it. And that's how, again, you build that community then and you get that kind of cult following that Apple has. Absolutely, and, and with this knowledge, go around and look at all the marketing that's targeting you and look at how much of it is rationally based, right? It's rational, it's trying to explain to you instead of just making you feel something. And it's amazing how much marketing out there still is, uh, is missing the point of the power of evoking emotions. And now, I mean, with that whole segment there, I mean, you've given us so much information on neuromarketing, on just the understanding of how emotions really come into marketing and really create such a strong foundation for a company or Ken, such as Apple in this instance. But with the time that we live in, we are bombarded by a lot of digital noise. And we do have a lot of people also trying to hit us with these emotional tactics. So, you know, how do we evolve from that as a mark as a marketer as a, a, a business how do we get out of that kind of sea of sameness while still using some of these tactics that of course work but how do we make it different how do we kind of evolve from this point and that's a great great question because we are bombarded with information and we're, we're in information overload right it's it's cognitive overload our brains physically cannot handle it. And so the brain is actively trying to filter out as much as possible. Oh, wait, I have a Facebook notification. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was already tweeting earlier back at someone. So. <laughs> so, so, right. So we are hit with anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 marketing messages every single day. And that doesn't even include social media. Mm -hmm. So imagine if you add the social media messages, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable how much information is is out there and uh, our brains constantly have to filter through and figure out what's important what's not what's relevant what's not what's intriguing you know what what do i need to spend time on and what am i going to ignore we've created a world that has 300 exabytes of human-made information that's 300 followed by 18 zeros 
just a few years ago, Google estimates there were only 30 exabytes of human-made information. We've created more information in the last couple of years than in all of human history before us. So here, here's a challenge for marketers. Our consumers or our buyers are, are constantly inundated with information, plus the human brain by nature wanders at least 30% of the time. Sometimes as much as 40, 50, 60, 70%. And if you look at my daughter studying her homework, I would say it's more like 90%. <laughs> it's, it, so, okay, as a marketer, that's tough to deal with. If the human brain naturally wanders, right? It, people are not reading every word in our marketing messaging. Even though we spend hours laboring over every single word, our audience is not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and in fact, their, their brain is trying desperately to rule our message out. The, the brain is a, it's a prediction engine. And so what it's trying to do, and this dates back to you know, the time when we were cavemen and cave women and, and just trying to survive, right? So the old brain, the core of the brain, uh, is in fight or flight mode all the time, even today. Now, the threats that we face are, are a lot less ominous than, say, a, a, I don't know, a, a big tiger or a lion right in front of us. Um, but the brain, ha that part of the brain, the old brain, has, has not evolved from that point. It still is trying to figure out how to keep us safe, right? right. And so what it tries to do, how does it try and keep us safe when it's faced with 5,000 messages a day, mm. right? That's a challenge for the brain. and so out of pure necessity, it's trying to rule out as many things as possible. It's trying to filter out as many things as possible so that it can only focus on what it has to focus on. And what's interesting is you might say, oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll get through to, um, uh, I'll get through that pretty easily. Well, here's the problem. The old brain is very adamant that every message must pass through its security gate before it will pass it on to any other part of the brain. So if, Going back to your question, right? The sea of sameness. If you are part of the sea of sameness, if your message is similar to others or if it's perceived to be the same as others, the old brain in its prediction engine mode is going to say, filter out, not worth my time, not worth, nothing here to see people, move on, move along, <laughs> right? And it won't even allow the other parts of the brain to process that information. And, and so you really need, by necessity, if you want to get through and if you want to fight through all the noise and uh, break through and get noticed, you have to deviate. You have to deviate and also what's really great to do, surprise your audience. So deviation is fantastic because it breaks away from the prediction engine. If you're deviating, if you're doing something completely different, then the brain takes notice. And then the old brain says, oh, okay, well, this is, this is new. I'll pass it along for processing now, <laughs> right? And so you can break through that, that clutter. Now, surprise is really interesting in that it's, it's different than deviation uh, in that, you know, you're physically trying to make someone feel the emotion of surprise, right? And so the neuroscientist Gregory Burns uh, down at Emory University took a team and studied a group of people where they uncovered that the human brain actually enjoys surprise more than it enjoys things that it likes. Oh, wow. Very counterintuitive. So, so you would think, oh, I like cheeseburgers, right? <laughs> or I like, <laughs> I like chocolate cake. But, but actually our brain enjoys surprise more than the things we like. It's amazing. So, so as a marketer, let's translate this, right? What that means is in our marketing, what we want to do is deviate. Deviate, deviate, deviate. And not only do we want to be different, right? Not only do we want to be different than everyone else, but we want to surprise you. The more that we can deviate and surprise you, the more that we're going to go back, going back to your question, we're going to be able to, to break through this sea of sameness and all of this clutter all around us and this information overload and capture the attention of our audience. And the good, the good part about this is that oftentimes you can connect that with emotional marketing. And so, you know, look, look at a company like uh, Blendtec. So they make blenders for your kitchen, okay? Just, you know, food processing blenders. And, okay, the, the way that that market tends to sell their, their wares is 
they'll, they'll make a dish and they'll show you making a dish. That's fine. That's fine. But what Blendtec did, it was really interesting. So George Wright was the new VP of marketing at the time, and they had a budget of, I think, zero, or maybe it was like $5, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> I mean, it was really low. And so George had this problem where he was, he was trying to sell blenders, uh, which by their, their very nature might, might not be considered terribly sexy, uh, and he had no budget. And one day he was walking through the factory and he saw the founder and the president of the company putting a, a two-by-two board into one of his blenders. And, you know, there was sawdust everywhere and he, you know, he mashed the thing up. It, it, he completely ground it to, uh, to, to dust. And so George said, what are you doing? And it turns out that that was the way that the founder tested the power of the blades in oh, their products. Wow. And so he would put all sorts of crazy things into the blenders to see <laughs> <laughs> just how far he could take it. And so George got an idea and he said, wait, we're gonna turn this into our marketing. And he, he got a camera and he put the president into a scientist's lab coat and they <laughs> created a laboratory, will it blend? And they started doing scientific oh. experiments and they tested golf balls, and they tested diamonds, and they tested marbles, they tested a rake, they tested a Justin Bieber CD. They, <laughs> <laughs> they tested everything, they tested an iPhone, and they got over 50 million video views oh, on wow. their videos, and uh, sales skyrocketed, and it, it, you know, if, if they had tried, well, they, they didn't have the budget to do advertising, and so they couldn't compete that way, and if they just tried doing the marketing that others in the industry traditionally did, then they would have been lost in this sea of sameness. Instead, they did something unthinkable, and they came out with something which was a total deviation from the norm, surprised anyone who came across their videos, and the revenue, uh, well, the revenue growth really proved the, the value of that. I can definitely see the shock in that. I mean, going from a 10-cent banana and saying, hey, it'll blend a banana, to hey, it'll blend an iPhone at a grand. Uh, that's pretty impressive, and it does grab your attention, and you remember it. And I think that's where a lot of this viral marketing can stem from, too, is that, that shock value, that sense of being surprised because you are deviating off the path. And that I can see right now from you explaining that, why it has such a big impact. We're being taken down one path, and it's like a horror film or anything else where all of a sudden something else, you know, and all of a sudden we're, we're pulled to the left, we're pulled to the right, and we have no control over it. And we're just going, whoa, wait a minute, what did we just see? And now our brains are forced to process all of that, which means thinking on the company, thinking on the product or the service, thinking on what they just did, how we feel because of it. So now we're really truly thinking on it rather than going and looking at something going, oh, that's nice and moving on. It's like when they say with uh, information that if you write it down, because you have to think about every single word, every single letter and how you wrote it, you're more apt to remember information than just looking at it on a screen. Absolutely. And Evan, you bring up a good point, human memory. And it's true that what, what Blendtec did is more memorable, right? Mm -hmm. And that's also going back to a neuroscientific concept, which is human memory is different than, say, computer memory. With a computer, you can search for the number eight or a, spe you know, a specific data point, and you can find it within a database of, of millions or hundreds of millions of data points, right? And it's isolated. It's an isolated point, and it's not connected to anything else, right? And with the human brain, the human brain cannot work that way. It's very relational in, in its nature. And so if you go back to, oh, that time that you bought your first iPhone, well, you're not only gonna remember the physical location, you're gonna remember everything associated with that, that whole experience. And so it's, it's very sensual, right? So you, you'll remember what you saw, you'll remember what you smelled, you'll remember what you heard, you'll remember the entire experience. And so that's what the human brain is doing. In order to have one human memory, it's pulling many, many different neurons from different parts of the brain and piecing them together. And so the human brain actually doesn't just automatically remember, it's this manual process of piecing memories back together again over and over and over again. And so the more that you can make it a multi-sensory experience, the more likely your audience is gonna remember it. So think about, if I just say, oh, well, our blenders are more powerful than the competitions because they have, you know, 10 times the horsepower, okay? But if I show you, you know, diamonds being ground up or a <laughs> Justin Bieber CD being ground up, right? 
then it's it, you remember the sight, you remember the feeling, you remember everything about that experience. And attaching the uh, a emotion to that human memory also can change how you remember and what you remember, and that's also that's the other part right there too. Well, they already say that humans experience reality in a very different way from one another, and those emotions can have an impact on how we're experiencing it. I could be really ticked off because I had that fender bender. So now I feel like every little part of my day is going to crap and it's just horrible. And then you could have the other person who got in early into work, is feeling good. They remembered their lunch. They got everything going right. Uh, they were just told they had a bonus and they are experiencing the same environment very, very, very differently. And so that can work on memories too, which is absolutely fascinating. Now. Hopefully we don't go that far into technology yet. We're all of a sudden they're scanning our memories, but who knows? That could very well be something that happens. It could be. In the distant future, that could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we start going into overanalyzing every single piece of advertising and marketing we've ever seen, can you tell us actually a little bit more about your book, kind of the expectations for the reader and where they'll be able to find it? Sure, sure. So uh, my book is Rethink Your Marketing. And it's all about seven strategies for how you can rethink different aspects of your marketing to unleash revenue growth. So if you're stuck or if you've hit a plateau with your revenue, this is the perfect book to help you understand and uncover new strategies that you can employ in order to unleash new growth. And so uh, the, the book is at RethinkYourMarketing.com. And actually, for, for readers of this podcast, uh, I would like to make a special offer to you that you can download uh, the first chapter of the book for free. Just go to RethinkYourMarketing.com slash branch out. So, and it's just branch out, no hyphen, just RethinkYourMarketing.com slash branch out. And so uh, the whole idea of the book is this. Uh, there's a problem with the way that a lot of companies are doing their marketing today, and that's that they do what they've always done in the past, or they do what others in the industry are doing. They, they, right? they look at the competition, and they follow the competition, or they do whatever the media is hyping at the time. And all of these are horrible, horrible ideas. It is not the way to crush it in the marketplace. <laughs> it's not what Apple's doing, guys. It's not what exactly. Apple's doing. <laughs> exactly. And, and so... The idea is that, you know, don't try and tinker like that. Go big, go all in, and really change what you're doing. Rethink the way that things are doing, just like George Wright did in the, the kitchen blender market. Rethink it completely. And I, I, I love thinking about the high jump as uh, just a representative example of, of this type of thinking. So, okay, the first high jump in history was, was back in, in ancient Greeks and uh, Greece, uh, I, I believe it was 8 BC, something like that. Um, and, uh, and so we go roughly 2,000 years where almost every human being on the planet is high jumping the same way over and over and over again through all the centuries. And then this dude comes on the scene in 1968. Uh, his name is Dick Fosbury. And all of a sudden, instead of going headfirst over the bar, he turns his back to the bar. And everyone thought, what in the world is he doing? And he goes on to crush the Olympic record that year by more than two inches. And if you look at all of the Olympics since that time, what are all the champions doing? They're doing it his way. So the lesson there is sometimes you really need to rethink the way that everyone in the industry is doing stuff. You have to rethink the way that you're doing stuff in order to achieve quantum leaps in whatever it is you're trying to achieve, whether it's a higher high jump or whether it's generating more revenue for your business. And so, you know, you, you look at, well, I'll give you a personal example. In a prior life, I joined an agency where the way that the agency historically had generated leads was it would pay $30,000 or $40,000 or $50,000 and participate in very large trade shows or conferences. And so it would have a, a booth and uh, exhibit at the booth, but very, very expensive. And, and you know, it did get, get leads. And so that, that was fine. Many companies in the industry did it. But the problem is that many companies in the industry did it. <laughs> that, that's the problem. So I would walk down the aisle at one of these shows and literally there would be, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 competitors 
all lined up one after another after another. And sure, there were subtle differences among them, but it was very difficult to decipher exactly how each of these 40 or 50 competitors were different from one another. And so myself and one other person at the uh, agency decided to do local intimate events instead, where it was only us and invited guests. And so instead of having, say, 5,000 people at a conference, yeah, we might only have 10 or 20 or 30 people in the room, but it was only us, an invited expert or, or speaker, and a few people we invited. And in the first event that we had, we landed a multi-million dollar contract. Nice. <laughs> in the third event that we had, we landed another multi-million dollar contract. <laughs> And within 12 months, this was the number one lead driver in the entire company. And instead of landing, you know, typically, historically, we, we might have been landing $150,000 or $200,000 jobs. Now we were landing contracts worth seven figures. And so that never would have happened if we had simply tried to tweak the way that we were exhibiting at these large trade shows. What we had to do is completely rethink what we were doing and rethink the marketing that we were doing and change everything. It might be counterintuitive to try to market to 10 people instead of 5,000, but sometimes it, that's exactly what unleashes all of your growth. And so what was the effect of this? Well, when I joined the agency, I was the 85th employee. Five years later, we had over 700 employees. Oh, wow. And that's a perfect example of quality over quantity. Absolutely. Right, there, right? Those 10 people, those are actual good leads as opposed to hundreds of eh, maybes. Exactly, exactly. And, and so, you know, sometimes it really does make sense just to, to stop what you're doing, really rethink whether it's your audience segmentation or your marketing mix or the metrics that you're measuring against, right? Let, let's go back to the pasta example, right? So the metrics that they were focused on were traffic, right? Wasn't the metrics that I was looking at. I was looking at engagement metrics, right? And the engagement metrics were horrendous and it <laughs> changed everything. It changed the whole direction of the company, right? And so sometimes you need to rethink your metrics. Sometimes it's your marketing mix. Sometimes it's your, it's your revenue model. Lots of different ways that you can rethink your marketing. That's, that's what the book walks you through. That's excellent. And if you're really excited, like we all are here about this book, make sure to check out the link in the description below where you can actually get a sample of the first chapter of the book for you to read through and really start getting you into marketing mode, basically into marketing beast mode, if you will, and really <laughs> rethink your marketing. So Tom Shapiro, thank you very much for being on the show. It was fantastic to have you on, have your energy, your experience, and again, to talk more about neuromarketing. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And if you feel really energized by this, make sure to rate us on the side or below or wherever it is on your screen. We haven't heat mapped it yet, so we're not sure specifically where for each <laughs> platform, but make sure to check it out. Rate us, let us know your thoughts. Let us know some things that you'd like to hear in the future for the show, as well as subscribe. This is the best way to support the show as well as to be the first to be notified when a new episode comes out. Also, if you like what you hear, you can find out more information on past guests, future guests, and also topics that we've already covered in the past through facebook.com slash branch out podcast, all one word, or you can go to our new landing page at waverlyknobs.com slash branch out podcast as branch dash out dash podcast for more information on the show on us and on again, future shows coming out. So until then, thank you so much for listening and get your marketing hats on, get out there and take on the world.